Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Hulse and Will Murray discuss Walter B. Gibson and his shadows. Ed is publisher at Morania Press, and Will is an author and pulp historian. Will's latest book is Master of Mystery, The Rise of the Shadow. This event was recorded on Saturday, August 21, 2021, at Pulpfest 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ed begins. Well, uh, you know, just by a comment to open up, so many of our favorite pulp writers died long before they realized that people like us, decades later, would be feverishly collecting and reading and analyzing and appreciate their work. I mean, think of some of the biggies. Max Brand died as a war correspondent in World War II. And decades later, there was, there was still an active Max Brand fandom. And his hardcover publisher was issuing books, reprinting his pulp stories long after he passed away. Brand had absolutely no idea that he would have uh, uh, such a dedicated fan following, including people like our own Daryl Richardson, who was one of the early Pulp Fest regulars. Somebody like H. Bedford Jones, who at one time was considered the king of the pulps, died in 1949, again having no idea that there would be people collecting his magazines and paying incredible sums of money for his uh, rarest hardcover books. But Walter Gibson, who wrote The Shadow, was one of the lucky ones because he was alive and was very much aware and very much appreciative of the fans who would come to love The Shadow and collect and read and analyze The Shadow stories just as other people did of their favorite authors. And it's ex- we're extremely fortunate that Walter was uh, not only appreciative but since he had such a, a personal connection to the shadow, to the work that he had done, which Will will talk about, he was incredibly generous in sharing his reminiscences, his work methods, and I think that the, it's safe to say that he loved um, the attention that he got and the recognition that he got from fandom. Uh, will and I both met Walter at the same convention, a 1974 comic book convention in New York City where Walter was asked to be one of the guests. I talked to Walter once after that at another convention. Will developed a relationship with him. And um, let's start there, Will. After you met Walter at that 1974 convention and talked to him, how did you turn that meeting into, into a relationship. I wish I could remember. I, I do know that within a year or le- approximately a year of that first meeting, he was a guest of honor at PulpCon. I don't think I had anything to do with that, but he, so I saw him again. And now when I first met him, I handed him my copy of Duende Number 1, which had the Graves Gladney interview. And of course, I, it had an article on Lester Dent, and he knew Dent. So, and it was a pretty professional magazine for its time. So that was my entree. Someone later showed me a transcript of an interview they did with Walter talking about um, 
the people he's met in the conventions, and he, he, he said that of all the people writing about the popes, Will Murray seems to be the most competent, you know, which is a good sure. compliment for that time, because I was pretty young. I didn't hear about it for years. So um, somewhere in, in the course of his Pulp Connor convention appearances, which Nanavik were, John Nanavik, his editor work, was at, somehow I got his phone number, he gave me his phone number, uh, I may have been talking about doing the Duende History of the Shadow at that point, and he was supportive of that. Um, but I don't remember how how the, that chain of, of, I met him at a convention, became, I have his phone number, and we talk fairly regularly. Uh, Tony Tolan may have been part of that, because he knew Walter, uh, although he may have only been met, met him at the same time we did, approximately. His connection was pretty good, too. Um, so somewhere in that nexus of the two or three convention appearances he made in the 70s, um, I think he was at PulpCon in 75 or 6 and then again in 79, and Ninovic was at one of those, if not both of them. Ninovic was at the Cherryville PulpCon, uh, and I think Walter was there too. So he made, I think he made three PulpCon appearances. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there were some other conventions I saw him at. So we, we established a rapport, and you know, my sincerity and my, my questions were probing, and they were intelligent questions and not just, you know, how come the shadow had two guns? And, yeah, right. You know, why did he wear the hat? You know, stuff like that. So somehow it evolved. And I, I think also because I became involved a little bit with Starenko's uh, Secret Society, Shadow Secret Society, you know, there was a nexus there. So they kind of like accepted me as a, as a young but serious researcher. And I remember when, I, when, I, when my Duende turned into Duende in the Shadow, Walter was very supportive in terms of fielding my questions over the phone and, and uh, giving me insights and guidance on, well, this wasn't important, but this is. And, you know, this is why we did this. And, you know, he answered a million questions. I wish I had those phone calls on tape because they were, I probably didn't remember a lot of the stuff. And I was asking really nuts and bolts questions. Um, so somehow it evolved. And I can't really remember, the, as I said, I can't remember the, the chain of, of events. I just remember that it happened fairly quickly. Yeah. Within a year or so of meeting him. My impression of, of Walter... Uh, during our brief meetings, I was struck by how ebullient he was, and, and even at his age, and I guess he would have been in his late 70s in 1974, the, the zest that he had for life and the enthusiasm that where it would have been easy for him to say, yeah, I spent all these years grinding this crap out, you know, da, 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 and I was just doing it for, for the money. But the enthusiasm that he had and the the... Uh, the, the deep personal affection he had for his own creation as, as if it were part of him. When did you get the impression, when did you realize this is a guy that we can really get a lot of information out of? I think in the beginning, because I, it's an embarrassing story for me, but the first time I actually met him, I was in line for the autograph thing before his panel, and I had my tape recorder. And I started asking him questions on tape in the line with people backing up, up behind me. <laughs> and I, I was young, and I was, I was not sensing the time going by, but I had some key questions to ask him. And at one point, Stranger said, why don't you join our panel, and we can continue this. So, okay, we did that. So I was on my first panel with Walter and Stranger, and I hardly contributed to it, as I recall, because Walter had a lot to say. 
and didn't need a lot of prompting. Um, and then we did uh, something else where uh, I got more, more time with him. So uh, I realized very immediately that if you asked him a question, he usually had an answer. He may not have a, as clear an answer as you might want, but he did have an answer, and there was thinking behind his answers. And he had a good memory. He had an excellent memory for his age, or any age. Because, you know, a lot of people, including myself, you write a book, and three years later, you go back to it, and you, it's a lot of it surprises you, because you wrote it in that time, in that trance of that time, and you didn't look back. So he was a, he was a fountainhead of, of anecdotes and stories, and even to this day, I think back to questions I wish I had asked. For example? Well, um, in the early shadows, there was a, a mail drop in an office building with the name B. Jonas on it. And it's like, well, what's the significance of that, if anything? And, you know, some of them, I, 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 why, the, why the Cobalt Club? Why that color? And I figured it out after a long time. Um, there was a Yale Club in there, there is, in New York City, and its flag was the Yale color, which is Cobalt Blue. So that means Lamont Cranston is a Yale man. Okay, and that is so simple, and he could have told me that very quickly, and I didn't think to ask because I thought he made it up on a whole cloth because the name it seems a little exotic, mm -hmm. but no, it's the Yale Club under the colors of, of uh, um, the school color, oh, an unusual blue, and then there was you know um, um, where exactly was the sanctum. He sort of said, I know where it is, but, you know, he doesn't, didn't want to say it, so it was in a couple of places at different times. I would have pushed on that a little bit more. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I never asked him to tell me about the Street Smith building and all the stories about other people there, because they weren't as interesting to me then as they are now. In those early days, as you were getting to know him and asking him these, these questions and conducting those first interviews, did you have a sense that there were certain things that he didn't want to talk about that maybe he got into later on with you in later years when you, you know, when he knew you better and trusted there were you? Things, there were things that he would say off the cuff that he wouldn't say on tape. Like he once, we were at one of the pulp cons and, and he mentioned he'd written Batman comics. Or I may have mentioned something about Batman and the Shadow being similar. And he made an offhand remark that Batman is just a clowned up version of the Shadow. I don't think he would say that on tape. And I remember um, um, there was another instance or two. Oh, yeah. He, he, he didn't like the whole Belmont experience. In fact, he turned him off to the shadow. That 1974 thing was trying to convince him to come to this convention that there was an audience and interested people. And he, this was his coming back to the shadow first appearance. He's re-embracing the, 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 the creation of the character and his responsibilities of the character. And the only time I ever heard him curse about somebody is he called uh, Lyle King and Engel, the packager, a son of a bitch. You know? uh, does everybody know what we're talking about, the Belmont experience? You, you want to give a brief... Uh... In the early 60s, Lyle King and Engel, a packager, uh, was looking for series, and he hooked up with Walter Gibson, or vice versa, and Walter suggested the shadow Ian bringing back Nick Carter. So they bring back Nick Carter as Nick Carter Killmaster, or American James Bond, and Walter was asked to write a shadow novel that was supposed to set up a series of reprints for which Walter would get a, a piece of the action. He didn't really want to write a bunch of new shadow novels. Um, 
Well, he did a first draft, and uh, they um, paid him for it and published it and didn't give him a chance to polish it, which he really wanted to do, because it was a paperback. It was a little more upscale than a pulp. And uh, they brought in a, a different writer to write new stories. And he was really upset about that, because that wasn't the deal he was pursuing. So he was completely cut out of it. It, just, it was a reprint of what happened when Street and Smith, and he came to the term, came, didn't come to terms on the shadow, and Bruce Elliott replaced him, and Bruce was a protege. So that was twice the shadow had burned him, you know, in the space of 15 years, approximately. Maybe closer to 20, no, more closer to 15. Yeah. So he was not happy about those things. I never, and he did once talk, sort of awkward about how disappointed he was with Bruce Elliott, and he kind of put Elliot down. Well, he had a big ego. He looked like Orson Welles, and he capitalized on that. So what, you know? Uh, what does that? In, in other words, Walter was saying Bruce Elliot wasn't really the right writer for the shadow, which is true. Uh, but Walter didn't understand what they were trying to do, and how they Walter could do what they wanted to do. But it turned out Elliot could do it less well than Walter might have been able to do it. Um, so you know, there were those moments when he was not happy, and I. I remember this, he never said it to me, but he, he, he mentioned to other people he wasn't happy with some sections of the Twin Day history, which I let him read in advance and he commented on. But when I talked about his writing in 42, 43, 44, being kind of tired and repetitious and stuff, he, he, he didn't think that was the case. And he especially took exception to the fact when I talked about the Digest era, which was more of a reflection of the radio show, as being a real departure from the, the shadow of the 30s, and his, he said somewhere that, you know, you, what did he expect me to do? You know, keep writing the same kind of shadows I was writing in the early 30s. I mean, times change, the length of the stories changed, the radio show had an impact, and so he had a point. But from a standpoint of a collector who loves the shadow, reading those digests, as readable as they are, are a big departure. And a kind of a shock if you read one for the first time after reading a bunch of 30s stories. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't happy about my opinions uh, in, the, in that era. Mm -hmm. But I praised him so much in the other eras, he you know, didn't pick the bone with me. What was the general sense you got of how he felt about working with and for Street and Smith as opposed to maybe another publisher? He was, a, he was like John Annabeck, he was very cooperative. Um, when they were using the shadow for the first shadow comic book, I mean, he really felt like, well, no, the, you know, I created this character, I have some rights here, and they said, well, well, we'll let you write the comic book and pay you double or triple the going rate, and he took that as, as well, more work, more money. When another writer would say, no, you, I'll write the novels, you pay me a fee when, you, when, you, when someone else writes a shadow comic, but he, he went into a comics career through that. Uh, and I think, you know, there were things that he, he said, you know, um, if, if I give Street and Smith certain benefits, it helps the magazine, keeps the magazine going, and I benefit because I still have the work, which is a freelancer's attitude. Yeah. Another person would say, no, I have rights, pay me. You know, pay me for my rights. Buy me out or, or satisfy me some other way or give me a raise. Um, and I think that worked well for 15 years, but when new management come in and came in and they started pressuring him to do a completely different shadow than he was comfortable with, um, you know, they really, you know, when they tried to get him to sign a contract that said, that said Street and Smith created the shadow, 
you know, that was too much for him. He, he, he built it out of a laugh and a personality. Um, so, he, you know, so he got burnt. And I think after that, he was never felt the same about Street and Smith. Justifiably so. They should have worked with him cooperatively. He was going to sue them. And maybe he did. I don't know what happened. We never got into that. But I don't, I don't know what happened as a result. But he was upset because he felt as long as the Shadow Magazine was being published, he should be the main writer. And he was okay with Ted Tinsley coming in. And when, when they wanted Marco Lane in the stories, I know he wasn't happy. I could tell from some of his offhand comments, but he also said, you know, it was probably for the best because the radio show helped sustain the magazine, which helped sustain me, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, he would confide in things that weren't, you know, he was still very reserved about that stuff. He didn't like the bad mouth people, yeah. but he, he could, but he would do it in a very genteel way. Yeah. So I should mention at this point, I was remiss in introducing Will. Uh, I forgot to mention that his interviews with Walter, including that conversation from that fateful 1974 uh, comic convention panel, are now in a terrific new book that he's been selling and signing here at the convention called Masters of Mystery, which I urge you to get. Now, a lot of this material appeared in fanzines, but now, if you don't have them, those fanzines are not the easiest to get, and you have all this material between two covers. So I think you probably still have copies left. No, I sold out yesterday. He sold out. Oh. Well, you're out of luck. And also, I'm not set up tomorrow. I'm flying out early in the morning, so I won't, I won't have anything available. Okay. Sorry. But it's on Amazon. It's called Master of Mystery, The Rise of the Shadow. It's, uh, it's in soft cover on Amazon and on my website, www.adventuresandbronze.com, but also available in hardcover on my website, adventuresandbronze.com with a slightly different back cover on the dust jacket or a significantly different back cover. But I should say that some of the pieces in there are majorly revised. I had a, a, an article on the sh- history of the shadow on radio that I just blew up to a giant, you know, 60-page article with going to a lot of material that hasn't been really looked at before or, or put together, you know, to make sense of how the shadow was, was born on radio before it gravitated to or migrated to pulps. Yeah. So, uh, and this book will probably be followed by a sequel with that's the old Twin Days of the Shadow, expanded and revised and much improved, you know. And one might me next to say that. Next year. Next year. So, uh, when you were doing these interviews and getting to know Walter and talk to him, I'm curious, as someone who eventually became a novelist yourself, did you draw a lot of inspiration from his discussions of his working methods and how this, he... Yeah, you know, I, I think both Lester Dan, whose outlines I saw, they all survived for the most part, um, but also Walter talking about his work and talking about his, his thinking about it. Between those, I absorbed a lot of the Street and Smith approach to how to approach a novel, even though I don't use out, outlines much anymore. Uh, I learned a lot about, um, and also from reading the stories, um, there was a lot to pick up by osmosis as well as by reading. Um, and you know, Walter, Walter, unlike Dent, Dent was a formula guy. Someone once joked that Dent has three dark savage formulas and he just repeated them, that's not really true, but there were a lot of repeated formulas and Dent believed in being creative within the formula. Gibson, because of the pressure of twice a month on the shadow, he couldn't repeat ideas because he'd be repeating them too often. So every shadow was outlined from scratch 
as a kind of a, the, the latest innovation in the shadows adventures. Like you, 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 you could read 325 shadow novels and maybe one of them in the shadows fighting bank robbers because they're not big enough a villain, but they're good enough for one book. So Walter was always talking about, you know, the shadows are fighting criminals, and he would just mow them down with the score. And, you know, like a horror. So you move up from that. He's got to fight madmen, super criminal spies, science fiction menaces. You needed to get upping the ante. And so the idea that you can't repeat yourself, and that you've got to find clever ways to do things. I think I learned more from Walter about plotting and ingenious twists and plotting clever twists and turns of the story than I did from Dent. From Dent, I learned more like the stylistics and how to keep the characters interesting in the dialogue, because those guys were equals, but they were opposites. Dent was a better stylist and a better dialogue writer. Walter was a better plotter and a more clever plotter. But I would not want to pick one as better than the other because I don't think at the at the top of their game they were they were very strong, but their strengths were very different. You know, Walter wrote in an older style. Dent wanted to be up to date, and so you know he wrote hard boiled dog savages when hard boiled were was the case, and he wrote more human interest dog savages when human interest was the trade. Do you think uh, uh, was Walter? Did he jealously guard his secrets? Was he really forthcoming? He was he really forthcoming. I mean, I'm sure there were secrets. And, I, and I'm sure he didn't, he didn't necessarily volunteer things. If you didn't ask, that maybe that might have been sensitive. He maintained his friendship with John Nanvick to the end. They were still good friends. Whereas the other writers like Dent, they went off in different directions, didn't stay in touch. So... Um, um, I don't, you know, there, there were secrets that I found out later, you know, that, you know, I, Nanavik once told me that Walter was involved in an automobile accident and, and that there was a fatality. Walter volunteered that and I eventually found online a report of it and I thought it had been in the late 30s when there was this gap in the shadow sequence when Walter didn't write any shadow novels for three months. I found it in the mid-30s when he was just chugging out and like, he had this accident, it was traumatic, and he kept writing the shadow, it didn't stop him, which was amazing. Um, so that was a secret that Walter, I'm sure, didn't want anyone to know, but it was in the public record, it's just that, you know, nobody thought newspapers would be online, and you <laughs> could look it up from your house, so he thought that was buried, justifiably so. Um, and. You know, there may have been some other things where he, you know, I, I want, he, he could tell you to, over and over again how he created the name Lamont Cranston. He could never tell you where Kent Allard came from. He said, the best you could get is, I don't really remember, but I remember making a list of names and choosing that one. I think it came up suddenly to, to give the shadows real identity away, and I think just on the fly, he came up with a bunch of names, picked that, and there was some pressure involved to do that. And, uh, you know, um, he never told the story that Dick Worms had told in his autobiography that Walter didn't really think the shadow was going to last. And he, um, he kept doing magic tricks in the office and stuff to keep his fingers limbered limber because he thought he'd be going out on the road doing magic. Um, so he had no confidence in the shadow in the beginning. It's just when it took off, he just had to buckle down and do it. And even then, 
He once told me that Stuten Smith thought, thought the shadow would probably go five, six years tops, but maybe only three. I don't remember the exact number, but it was some relatively small span of time. They figured the radio show would peter out. The magazine would peter out, especially at twice a month. And they would just fold it and move on. Nobody thought it would go on for 15 years. You mentioned Ken Allard, and of course, all of us who are Shadow fans know that that's a, a turning point in the series, in the novel The Shadow Unmasked, where we find out that the Shadow, whose true identity we have not known up to this point, we've only known that he most frequently impersonates Lamont Cranston and other people, uh, less occasionally. Uh, we find out that Ken Allard, this uh, World War I aviator, is the true identity. I'm wondering how Walter felt about that revelation. Did he tell you, did he think that it would lessen the mystery, lessen the, the enigma or the romance of the shadow? I don't think he was as concerned about that because I think one of the problems is, he, he used to use the phrase, keeping ahead of the readers, keep the readers interested. He'd always have up, come up with new gimmicks, new plots, twists on plots. If he was doing a story that he felt it was like a story he'd done before, he'd call Nanavik and said, I think we've got to break away from this ending and go in a different direction. The readers won't be fooled by that one, and Nanavik would okay it. He, what he told me was, uh, this came up suddenly, and they, they sort of rushed it into print, because the story, if you'll remember The Shadow of Mass, that's a subplot, and he doesn't do subplots. It's a typical story, with this element in it, and um, um, I think that it was, this was just an editorial suggestion, now it's time, and he was very responsive to, because he worked well with Danovic, if somebody said it's time to do it, it's like, okay, we're doing it. And uh, he immediately made sure Cranston was still an active character as an alias in the, in the series, but I think the pressure of the radio show, which was just premiering at that time, pushed Allard off. And you know, and, and, and this, it's the same with Margot Lane. I think he, to some degree, reluctantly went on with things, or went on, went on, went, agreed to do things with some reservations, but I don't think he was an arguing type. I don't think he would say, maybe this isn't time. If, if you're six years in the series and it's time to inject it with new energy and revealing who the shadow is, I think he, I think he understood that, yeah, maybe it's an hour or never, because mm -hmm. you don't know how long, you know, we see all this string of magazines coming out, you don't know that there aren't periods where they were thinking of canceling it, or, or at least replacing it with something else, well, let's drop the shadow to, to once a month and bring in something else, put our resources there, because this can't go on forever and we don't want to be caught you know, short, but the radio show with Orson Welles came in 37, injected new life. Suddenly there's a movie, it's a newspaper strip, it's a comic book, Shadows everywhere. Shadows as popular as Superman, who was brand new at that time. So uh, I think just Walter held on and did the best he could until Bruce Elliott came along. There was a letter that um, Doug Ellis shared with people where Walter was getting into writing comics, and it was easy money, easy work, and Jack Bender, or Otto Bender, I think it was, the writer, science fiction writer, wrote to someone else, oh, you know, I was talking to Walter Gibson, he's thinking of dropping his pulp work and just doing comics, because it's just easier, more money, it's not as rigorous. 
And, you know, that shocked me because, you know, I, I would think you would want to hold on to that. But, you know, Walter also liked to write for radio, but it wasn't as lucrative or as guaranteed. But he still did it. So, um, well, Walter was a company guy in the sense that as long as the company was feeding him work and paying him well, he was willing to, you know, surrender some rights. He never got as much as Dent did for Doc Savage until very late in the game. Dent got seven fifty for a Doc Savage novel. Walter got like six hundred. So Walter, you know, I certainly he deserved, you know, Dent's rate, but Dent argued for his rate. Hard, argued very hard. One thing that's always fascinated me about Walter and the way he wrote The Shadow and his dedication was that in terms of personality, he seemed like the life of the party kind of guy. There's stories abound of Walter going to parties and doing magic tricks till 3 o'clock in the morning. And yet, as much as he seems to have enjoyed that life and enjoyed people and enjoyed, uh, he seems to have been a very curious, intellectually curious guy. And yet, he had that ability to work so hard and so completely throw himself into the character. What insights did you get about that duality in his nature? Was that something that he was aware of and articulated, or, or uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I remember visiting with a couple I knew who were touring the area where he lived, and we'd stopped into his house and, and, and spent an afternoon. And the woman, you know, observed something I never noticed because I'm used to writers and how they look and how they think. And she said, you know, I can see how he turned out that much work because you can see how much he focused, how tightly he focused, how he was able to concentrate. And that was something I take for granted because as a writer I have to be able to concentrate to do my work. And But a lot of people can't concentrate or focus for periods of time right, that require them to write novels. Uh, I, I believe he, he, like me and like Denton, like so many other prolific people were trance writers. We go into a trance and we just, it just flows through us and some of it's mechanical, some of it's inspirational, some of it may be spiritual, you know, the characters start talking to themselves, you don't know what's going on, you just follow the, follow the action. Um, so I, I think he just tapped into the things that enabled him to do this. Uh, once he put together his detailed outlines, he said it was kind of like newspaper work. You just, you know, you just follow the plot. But you can't just follow the plot. Sometimes you find hitches and, or you think of something better. And then so you improvise along the plot, but you still adhere to the plot as much as practical to have a good story. But, you know, I, I, I know he got into spiritual and psychic stuff in later life, and he would talk about, you know, how when you're writing you completely lose track of time, and sometimes he would write stuff that would come true, and a lot of writers had that experience, and he started to think there was a mystical side to it. And there's a famous story in The Ghost of Gay Street, the last apartment he, he wrote in when he wrote The Shadow. Years later, people would see a, a phantom figure in a tuxedo with sparkling eyes walking around, and he got convinced it was a tulpa, which is this mental, this artificially created semi-physical being who is a thought projection or something that Tibetans believe is possible when it could simply be an ordinary ghost yeah. or nothing. But whatever it was, it was an apparition, 
as reported, and he can connected it to the shadow because he wrote the last shadow novels there. I would look at it and say, well, maybe there's just a coincidence of dress around the two characters, yeah. and maybe you know that's as far as it goes. But I don't know. But he got very interested in, in the in the weirdness of being a writer and in the weirdness of being a person such as himself, because magicians are normally skeptical, but he always had psychic experiences and weird coincidences, and he would tell you those. When I first interviewed him, him he, is, he, he told me as many weird stories as he told me shadow stories. Hmm. You know, it was on his mind. Or maybe he just recognized me as someone who would be open to hearing that. I don't know. He didn't know me, but he started telling these stories. When you read Master of Mystery, and you all should, you'll see the tremendous wealth of information that, that Will elicited from Walter over the many years. I'm wondering, did he ever make it clear to you or, or even hint at areas in which he would have liked to take the shadow but never did for one reason or another? You know, that is one area where I thought he deflected a lot. Uh, because when I talked to him about things like that, or or hinted that you know the Margot Lane direction was a little deflating for a character who was as powerful, he, he just he would talk about, and I think justifiably, when the times changed, the editor would want a new direction, and Ninovic said that all these characters that went a long time, the flavor or tone of the stories would change because the public would want a different type of style story. The hard, when the hard-boiled stuff went out, you had to substitute. And sometimes you brought in humor, and sometimes you brought in human interest, or both. And they just went there because at, at the bottom, everybody was making a living and they wanted the magazine to continue through thick and thin. So yeah, I sometimes didn't get satisfactory answers, but it might have been the way I framed the question, or it might have been too much inside baseball for him to remember. You know, I remember him him saying that when he first found out about Ted Tinsley, he walked in the office, there was a new issue of The Shadow that had rolled off the press. They often changed his title, so he picked it up, didn't recognize the title, that didn't mean anything to him. Opened the story, realized it wasn't his opening, and said, what the hell is this? And his contract, you know, guaranteed that he would be notified if they were bringing another writer. They didn't notify him. But when they explained that Tinsley was just doing four a year, as he explained it later, he said, well, that, you know, maybe that was good because they were trying to get him to experiment at a time that slowed him down in his stories. And bringing in Tinsley meant they could experiment with Tinsley and Gibson could just do his stories the way he wanted to. So it was a little bit of pressure off, but I don't think he wanted the pressure off. I think he just wanted to write the stories. Uh, as we know, in the Digest era, when uh, Walter left the series and Bruce Elliott came in, Elliott did a lot of different things, one of which was the most prominent of which, I'd say, was de-emphasizing the shadow altogether and letting Lamont Cranston carry the stories. Uh, when Daisy Bacon took over the magazine and they reverted to the shadow of old, do you think Walter felt that this was a new leaf on life, or do you think he sensed that the magazine was going downhill and would no, never actually regain it? He was very clear. He thought, you know, once they went back to the pulp, once they brought him back, he, he, he felt he rescued it, okay, by bringing back the old shadow. He also felt that bringing back the pulp size, which was a better 
format for the magazine because you could have a better cover and you have the old style covers back with George Rosen, um, he felt it wouldn't be long before they were back on a monthly footing. And then they pulled the rug out from under him and he was really upset. Because yeah. he came back and he had a year's worth of work, but it was, it was a quarterly. And that wasn't a year's worth of work. So he just wanted to get back in the shadow groove, you know, and a monthly would have done it. Twice a month would have been better. I don't think he should have done twice a month that late in the game. But, you know, they pulled the rug out rug off him. And he thought Daisy was a good editor. She read a lot of, you know, Sherlock Holmes and stuff. She knew what she was doing. And she basically said, write him the way you always have. So there was, you know, to him, having a congenial editor meant he writes a plot, they approve it, he goes home, he writes a book, he turns it in, he gets a check, he goes on to the next one. That's what he wanted. He got habituated to being a writing robot, you know, a creative writing robot. So, yeah, he thought the shadow, because it was still on the air, on radio. So he thought the shadow would basically be back in the, in, in the black, and it wasn't. Uh, we want to have a few minutes for questions, so to wrap up this part of it, Will, what are your final thoughts about Walter Gibson, the man? How you felt after developing this relationship with him, getting your own questions answered, but getting to know somebody in, in the process? What, what was your ultimate impression of Walter, the kind of guy he was? Well, you know, he was always, you know, he was always talking about his autobiography, but even though he planned to do that, he was very free in telling me or answering the questions I asked. He may not have volunteered certain things, but I remember him once telling me a very personal story about his first wife running off with the town dentist, and he said, oh, I didn't mind that so much, but they lived in the same town as me, as me and that was embarrassing. Well, most people wouldn't tell that story on yeah. themselves. So he, 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 he um, I think he trusted me. I think he liked me. I think he didn't like some of my opinions of things, but who does like everybody's opinions of things? But he was always willing to answer the phone. He, and I bought the last shadow story he ever wrote from my book, and... Uh, uh, I, I, he was very professional about that. He turned it in with a title. Without a title, let me title it. And uh, um, this is Blackmail Bay. Yeah, Blackmail yeah. Bay. He came in without a title. Um, I, I thought um, I thought he was uh, a very friendly, polite, frank, but somewhat reserved, or, or frank for his era. You know, type of person. Um, he 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 didn't hold back. I don't think very much. Uh, and he, he and he, you know, he, he respected my questions. He respected my friendship, and he understood that I was writing. You know, as I said earlier, writing sincerely about this stuff, and cared about it. And I was quite a bit younger than him. So, you know, he was, you know, for a guy who traveled a lot, knew the great magicians, had a whole career in magic, you know, he, he took me and people like me seriously. You know, I think it was a, a, a kind of resurrection of his shadow identity to discover he could go to conventions and people liked and was interested in his stuff. And a generation that was far removed from the generation that read the Shadow magazine found it still compelling reading. And so I think he just loved that. I think he had a big ego. And I remember a story I heard that I wasn't present at. He was at the San Diego Con. And Mrs. Dent, Lester Dent's widow, was there. And he was there. And they both gave talks. And Mrs. Dent 
was given an in ink pot award on, on behalf of Lester Dent, who, who passed away before. And people in the audience thought Walter looked a little put out by that because she was just the wife of Lester Dent. And he thought the shadow was the great pulp character, but Doc Savage was actually more popular in the long run. And I think that probably bothered him because they he was on the top of the heap. The shadow was a multimedia character. Doc Savage was great in books and magazines, but never gravitated to any greater public recognition. So that bothered him. Well, with that, let's open it up for just a few questions. Uh, let me call on you, raise your hand, and please stand up and articulate your, your question clearly so we can all hear it. Rich in the back. I suspected that. I never got a straight answer out of Walter if I asked a straight question, but I suspected they knew the radio show was on the horizon. They may not have shown, may, may not have known what it would entail, but I think they understood they needed to clarify this identity so the radio show could get it right. So um, I think that's probably the likeliest case, likeliest possibility because. It seemed to be done in a big rush, and they brought out that story fairly quickly, too. They didn't sit on it the usual six months. Yeah. Michelle? Did uh, Walter get upset when Street and Smith abandoned uh, their comic line in 1949, including the show? And was the, did Walter um, understand the situation regarding the comic books? I don't think he was writing for the Street and Smith comics that late. I think when he left... He told me, I tried to pin him down, when he left the Shadow Pulp, I think he was still writing the comic for a little while. It's a different editor. But then he stopped that. Uh, or they froze him out of that too. So I think he didn't care about the comic at that point from the standpoint as he wasn't involved. I think he more cared about the Pulp magazine. And I, I don't know that he did any Street and Smith comics writing after 46 or 47 at the latest. Tom. Uh, after the shadow, uh, after the pole, what was Walter's writing career like? I mean, the Belmont shadow comes along. Right. What did he do in the interval? In the 50s, he juggled two main things. True crime stories, which he liked doing until the research got the, and the cost of research and travel got the better of it. He did a lot of comic books. And then gradually he shifted over to doing books, hardcover books for Crossett and Dunlap or whoever it was. Um, books on magic, books on the occult, books on games, cards, whatever. So he, he basically became a, a pretty footloose freelancer in the 50s, but he found some niches, the true crime stuff. He was very prolific there. Uh, and that, he, that sustained him for a while. And he... He wrote for Charlton Comics, he wrote for, I think, the Avon Comics, he did some work with DC Comics, he did some Batman for them. So he tried to be, he, he basically eked out a living being prolific for anybody who would hire him to do the kind of thing that he felt comfortable doing. And I think it was the, the transition to hardcover books that got him a bit more prestige and got him out of the pulp ghetto. Any more questions? Yes, sir. Uh, 
did he ever talk about uh, his involvement with Tales of Magic and Mystery? Yes, he did. You know, he, he mentioned, I asked him about the Lovecraft story, and he felt that came in over the transom and was probably bought by his assistant, who was, um, was it Ed Burkholder? I can't remember. It was someone he was associated with on and off for a long time. But he, um, he, uh, he, he was proud of the fact that he published the Lovecraft story in later years when Lovecraft became more and more of a name. At the time, he, he worked on that magazine and he worked on True Strange Tales or True Strange Stories, both as an editor and a writer. And that was pretty much throwaway stuff. You know, interesting stuff, but throwaway stuff. I mean, there were magazines, so you, you read them and threw them away. So um, his assist, associate editor bought the, bought the story as it was his recollection, and he just approved the purchase, or brought it to his attention as a, as a keeper, and he approved the purchase. And of course, Gibson knew Houdini, and Lovecraft knew Houdini, and they had that nexus, but they didn't have it at the same time in the same way. So that was an interesting three-way connection. Right, we got time for one more question. David. When he wrote The Shadow, well, you know, it, it depends on what era you talk about. Growing up, he loved um, Doyle, Sherlock Holmes. He liked uh, Arsene Lupin, however you pronounce it, Maurice Levesque's character, who has been revived recently. Uh, he, when he wrote The Shadow, he tended to read nonfiction, especially police stuff and detective stuff, so he could keep up on you know, scientific uh, criminology trends and stuff. He loved Raymond Chandler when Chandler came along, which is very different from the stuff he used to like before that. He was more of a traditionalist in the sense that the old-fashioned mysteries were the ones he liked best. Um, I'm not sure what he was reading in later life in terms of fiction, because in later life, guys like that tend to gravitate more to nonfiction. So I can't really tell you about that. But uh, I know, I know he, he came to like Raymond Chandler when Chandler um, became popular in 39, 40, 41, and on. Uh, and there were a number of other writers he liked that were older style. You know, he liked Dracula, Bram Stoker, uh, and he was very influenced by uh, LeBlanc and Doyle and the mystery writers of that you know, turn of the century era. That's as much as I can remember right now. So I think Will has painted a, a, a very compelling portrait of Walter Gibson, but you'll learn a lot more by reading Master of Mystery, which I, I heartily recommend. It's years and years of research and interviews and insights, and it's, it's, uh, it's really terrific. So I want to thank Will, and I want to thank you for sitting in and coming to Pulp Fest. We still have a full evening of programming to go, believe it or not. We have a big auction. We're going to have movies later on. Uh, so please stick around, enjoy yourself, and um, have fun. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for The PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading The Pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2021.